The following content is provided to you as a ministry of Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a high-adventure Christian wilderness camp in Andrews, North Carolina. Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters exist to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through the exposition of Scripture and personal relationships in order to equip the church to impact this generation. For more information, visit our website at swoutfitters.com or follow us on Twitter using the handle at SnowbirdSwo. Enjoy the message. Amen. Man, it was good. That Christ Alone song. Just keep on singing that. Um, it's been so awesome hanging out with you guys. And uh, like Brody said earlier, man, it's been cool hearing stories of guys that on this trip, man, you've come to know Jesus. Um, and getting text messages late last night, uh, conversations where people are praying to receive Christ. And somehow I commend you, I man, if that's you, you've given your life to Christ, you surrendered to the gospel, I man, I commend you. That's awesome. And we're excited for you. And know that, man, the work is not done, right? Like, man, it's the beginning. And, uh, and for all of us, man, it's been an awesome retreat, but we're not done. Man, we're going to open the Word of God right now and, and believe and trust that God is going to transform us, that, that man, what we're going to see is what God is absolutely dedicated to, right? Like, His will for our lives is that we be more and more and more, day in and day out, more conformed to the image of His Son. That is His will for you. It's why He made you. And so that's going to happen this morning as we look into His Word. So go ahead and open to Judges chapter 3. And so... uh, Real quick, just remind us, right, like this whole cycle that's happening in the book of Judges that we see, man, that because when Israel goes into the land, they don't destroy all their enemies, right? They don't drive out all the people. They don't tear down all the idols. They come in and they get comfortable. And just like God had warned them, if they don't do that, man, these idols are going to become snares to them and the people who belong to those false gods are going to be raised up and oppress them. I mean, that begins to happen, and you see this cycle where when the oppression comes, right, when, when, when this momentary slavery comes on them, the people then cry out. And we've made the point over and over again, man, they're, they're not repenting. They're not repenting. They're just crying out because life isn't comfortable, Right? They're crying out because life's not going the way they want. They're crying out because of the oppression, because of the pain, because of the suffering. They're crying out for relief. And what they've done, man, is they've adopted all these false gods to like serve some aspect of their life. That's what false religion is. We create a God that serves us. And what they've done to Yahweh, what they've done to the one true living God, is made him just their God of get me out of trouble. Like, make, make the pain stop. The God of deliverance, but then as soon as that happens, as soon as the relief comes, God in his grace and his mercy, he would do this. When they'd cry out, he'd raise up a deliverer. He'd, he'd raise up a judge, and they'd be delivered. But the man, they would, in that comfort, in that time of rest, and then as soon as that judge would die, as soon as that deliverer was off the scene, who was no longer pointing them towards God, Man, they go right back to where they were, except worse, right? We said, man, this isn't a cycle. It's a downward spiral, downward spiral. I looked up the word spiral because I wanted to know what it meant. And here's what it said. In the dictionary, it says this. So a spiral is, circling around a center 
at a continuously increasing or decreasing distance. Simple. You guys probably already knew that. I know, let that set in. (laughs) That's as deep as it's going to get right there. (laughs) But so I asked myself, like, like, what? What's the center of their spiral? Like, what's pulling them in and down and around and back again and always down, always away from the Lord? What is it? It's unbelief. At the end of the day, it's unbelief. They don't really believe that God is good. They don't really believe that God is holy. They don't really believe that God is a consuming fire who because he made us in his image and likeness, if we sin against him, he cannot have anything to do with us. They don't really believe that God is just. And when he says, I'm going to pour out my wrath, they don't believe it. Otherwise, they wouldn't live like this. They don't believe it, man. So in unbelief, they spiral further and further and further away from Yahweh. And so he'd raise up a deliverer, They'd have some rest, and then they'd go right back to it. they go right back to sin. And so this story continues that cycle. It's the story of Ehud and Eglon. And man, can't make this stuff up. This story is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's dark, but it's like funny dark. We're going to pick up in verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. And Yahweh strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh, and Yahweh raised up for them a deliverer. Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, 18 inches in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. All right, y'all tracking? All right, so God's got this guy, man, in a strategic position. This, this dude's job was because they were serving Eglon, I mean, he had to gather the best of everybody's stuff, right? The best of the grain, the best of the grapes, whatever it was, and he would bring the best of it and lay it at the feet of Eglon. That was his job, and God put him in that position. Man, and I don't, I don't know, like we can only speculate a little bit, but whatever, however long he did this, he had built um, some sort of relationship, some sort of trust. He's probably like going above and beyond in the way that he serves Eglon, because of what happens here in a minute. But, but listen to what's said next. Where did I leave off? 18? Oh, yeah, 17. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And when... Time out. It's okay to laugh. I believe in the exposition of Scripture. <laughs> You know what that means? It means we've got to look at what every word means in its context. So let me break this down in the Hebrew. 
King Eglon was a very fat man. <laughs> and then it goes on like, oh, are we supposed to remember this? Like, this is, a, this is an important detail in the story, but I got to tell you a story. I got to tell you a story, okay? I got to tell you a story. It's not about anybody in the room, I don't think. <laughs> All right, so the first time I ever preached this passage, it, it, was, it was a long time ago. I was really just starting to preach here consistently. Um, and it was back when, uh, it was in this building, but we didn't have the comfy seats. We, we had metal chairs. Also, a detail that'll come back later. And, uh, and so I almost didn't preach uh, out of this chapter because there was a group here uh, with some people who were kind of egglonish, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but, but, you know, so I went to the guys and, you know, they'll always stare you straight and, uh, they're like, no, man, this is what the Lord laid on your heart. You, you can't, it's the word of God. You got to preach it. And I was like, that's right. And, uh, <laughs> and so I went in and I, I wouldn't even tell you this story. There's a couple stories in my life that I wouldn't even tell people if I didn't have witnesses. One of them involves two squirrels and a power line, but <laughs> that'll be next, be strong. And, uh, uh, but I'm not kidding, man. I, I'm re- all I'm doing is reading the text. And this one guy he was sitting, you know, back, like, on the, on, the, on the aisle, but he was in the very back, and he was in a metal chair, and he leaned back on that thing on its back two legs. And I, I remember, because I, I took note of it, because I thought, that's not a very good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not an engineer. <laughs> and, but I, I kid you not, man, all I was doing was reading. And I, and I looked down, and, as I, and I wasn't planning on pausing where I paused with you guys because, you know, I wanted to be sensitive. <laughs> <laughs> and as I read the words, as the words, very fat man, came out of my mouth, I'm not kidding, those back legs, they ran for the doors, man. <laughs> they, they had had enough, and they split, like, as far as the east is from the west, like... <laughs> never to meet again, and that chair went, bam! And I looked up, and it was like, what had happened? I had pictured it in my mind, and I was like, then there it was, and he was like, and, and, like, (laughs) you've seen that move. (laughs) The irony of the situation, like, there's nothing funnier than irony. And like, and I thought, and I, I was like, I can't laugh. <laughs> and so I remember like, I looked up at the sound booth because I thought, okay, just need to, I just need to get my thoughts together. And I looked up at the sound booth and I think Spencer was up there and he was like. <laughs> and I was like, and my brain was like, nope. And, uh, and I looked over there and Zach was over there and he was like, like. <laughs> And so I just looked down and I started reading. And that's what I did for the next hour straight. Like, we finished Chronicles and I was like, all right, amen, guys. See you you next time. (laughs) True story. Um, So, remember, he's a very fat man. So here's what happens. He brings a tribute, lays it before him, and says this. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, 
But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him. This is where I think, man, they had built up some sort of trust. Like, I think this was some sort of code. I don't know, man, if he'd been like, he'd bring him the best, but then he'd always kind of keep something separate just for Eglon. And so, and he was maybe getting some kickback for it. But, man, I picture this scene, right? Like, his, like he sent, uh, Ehud sends all the boys that helped him carry the goods away. And he comes back and says, I got a message for you, man. And he sends his attendants out. He sends his guards out, right? Like, you know, his guards and probably whoever's bringing them chocolate-covered figs, and, and, he, and, he, and he sends them away. So it's just the two of them in the room. And this wouldn't happen. This wouldn't happen. And he would came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, right? So it's his little palace deal in the ancient world, right? Like, they don't have AC, and so they'd have up on top of the roof, uh, probably like a pavilion-type deal where they'd get a good, strong breeze. That, that's where he would hang out. So he's sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he, Eglon, arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hill also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. That's another word for, yeah, poop, right? <laughs> yeah, like, man, it's crazy. So literally, the sword disappears, and his insides come out, right? So whatever training or just, man, the way that the sword went out, I think it also, he, do, he doesn't cry out. Like, man, he kills him instantly. The, flat, the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. It's a crazy scene. So what, what people think happened here is that he's up in the cool roof chamber, sends the guards out, so the guards go stand at the door, and they're alone on top of the roof. Man, and he kills them, and he's only got one way to escape, people think. Because he, he's, not, he's not going over the wall. He's not, like, scaling the wall. He's not repelling down. But what they think is, man, common in, the, in, in, in those types of palaces, there would have been not like a chimney, but definitely like a, like a place for the king to go to the bathroom, right? So there's this, this shaft where the king would go over, do his business, and it would refer to it as a closet, right? And, and he would do his business. So he escapes through there. So he climbs down, and he's committed to this, right? Verse 24 when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the door of the roof chambers were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of his cool chamber. But they waited till they were embarrassed, but when they still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there laid their Lord dead on the floor. That's a crazy story, right? And Ehud goes, and he rallies the troops, and they get this victory, man, they rout the army, they've got victory, they get their freedom back, and, and you think, man, awesome, God raised up a deliverer, maybe, maybe, like if this is your first time reading the story of, of Judges, you would think, now maybe, man, they're going to they're gonna return to the Lord, they're going to serve the Lord, 
They'll be faithful to Yahweh. Again, Yahweh has delivered them from impossible odds in a crazy way, showing himself to be strong showing himself to be the one true God, the God of their salvation, the God who provides for his people, then now they'll be faithful. No. Man says they serve God for like 18 years, and then, then Ehud dies. And it's, the spiral keeps going. And again, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In fact, man as the book of Judges continues, it just gets darker and darker and darker. Man, the last five chapters of the book, there's no hero. You keep meeting people, and you think, man, maybe this is going to be the judge. And there's not even a judge. There's not even a deliverer. It's just darkness. And what's so dark is, man, that, that everyone you meet, though, they talk about Yahweh. They talk about God. And they're just mingling false religion with what it means to be faithful to the Lord. And they're so far gone, man. They're so far gone. They're so far removed. Their, their thought, their worldview, and their thought pattern is so much like the world, they don't even realize it. They don't even realize the hypocrisy. They don't understand that they've, they've mingled everything together, and they no longer have any bearing on what's true or false. They're so far removed from the word of God, from what worship really looks like, that even their priests are doing unspeakable things. Unspeakable things. Worshiping idols, like making idols and thanking Yahweh for the idol. Man, that's like against two of the big ten right there. They don't see it. Man, the story gets so dark. And the point, the point is that Israel has become just like the rest of the world. They've become just like the rest of the world. I mean, there's a story, this Levite, right, like of the tribe that's supposed to like point the people and serve the people so that the people can worship Yahweh in purity and holiness. I mean, this guy's got a concubine. So already like, you know, like, okay, things are messed up. She runs away, man, and she's, She's hooking up with other dudes, and he goes after her and gets her back. And on the trip home, man, they, they're in a sleep in a city, and this guy comes out. He's like, man, y'all can't sleep outside. Y'all come stay with me. And they go into the dude's house, and as soon as it's dark, the men of the city, it says these worthless fellows come banging on the door. Come banging on the door because they want to satisfy their lust. But it's not lust for her. They want him. It's so dark. You're going, what? These are Jews. Like, what? what is going on? Like, these are the people of God. And the guy that brought him in, you think, well, maybe he's kind of the hero in the story. He's trying to protect him. You know what that joker says? He says, no, no, don't do, don't do anything evil. Here's my two virgin daughters and his concubine. Do with them what you want, but leave him alone. Man, what? How backwards. How upside down. What? I mean, it's a, you could read it in two seconds, but to stop and think, this guy's offering his virgin daughters to be gang raped outside of his house? You don't have to be a Christian to have that boil your blood, to say, over my dead body, right? Oof, I'm getting mad just thinking about somebody touching my daughter. 
What in the world? And that joker finally, they say, no, they don't want that. They want the dude. That joker finally throws his concubine outside. They rape her all night. He goes and sleeps. She's able to crawl to the threshold of the door, and she dies by the door. In the morning, he opens up, walks outside, and he tells her, he says, get up. Realizes she's dead, throws her on the back of his donkey, cuts her up, and sends her body parts throughout Israel. And the Israelites are like, man, nothing like this has ever happened. They're all freaked out. And then they go to civil war. They, they start fighting each other over this. And it's just like, man, what, what has happened? What, what's the point of this story? Well, the point is over and over and over again, we said it earlier. We said it. we started the retreat this way, that what we're going to see repeatedly is that, yeah, the people are doing what's right in their own eyes. The people did evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, that phrase begins to just become like over and over and over again. There was no king in the land, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. They had no king, and they did what was right in their own eyes. The point is to see that, yeah, Israel has become like the rest of the world because they didn't have a king to teach them the word of God. They didn't have a king to teach them the law. They didn't have a king to demonstrate and be an example for them for what it looks like to stay faithful to Yahweh. They didn't have a king to teach them justice and righteousness. And so they spiraled down in unbelief further and further and further away from Yahweh. And so on like the street level context, right? Like the street level view is God's preparing Israel for a monarchy, right? Like he's preparing them for a king. But the scaled back, like, universal view of this is that he is preparing all of us, not just for a king, but the king of kings. Because we can look at Israel here and go like, yeah, what in the world? Like, we're, why is this happening? Why is this happening? Like, I'm reading this and I'm angry. I'm outraged. Like, I'm sad at the state of affairs. Like, why is this happening? Like, we are supposed to feel that way when we hear those kind of stories. Sunday morning, man, we started off with like a fat dude breaking a chair and then we're talking about this horrible story. Like, what's going on? Like, we're supposed to feel that. We're supposed to feel the weight of that. We're supposed to be outraged by it because maybe just for a millisecond, like we can feel like the holiness of God being offended by sin. And maybe just for a second as we think, what kind of wrath, what kind of vengeance would I unleash on the man that attempted to touch my daughter? Every ounce that I have in my body, all five nine of me, all almost five nine of me. <laughs> Can't lie while you're preaching. Get all of it, man. Think God in his absolute holiness and purity. When he looks down at this world, what does he see? For all have sinned. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us were made to love and to worship, to know and to serve and to obey and to submit to Jesus, to God, our Creator. We were made by Him and for Him. And all of us have become unprofitable. All of us are unrighteous. All of us serve ourselves. Yeah, 
you, I, I doubt if we went around to everybody's house, we, we probably wouldn't find little wooden statues that you're worshiping. But we all got idols. We all got idols. And if you did carve it, you know what it, you know what it would look like? It would look like you. Mine would look like me. That's who competes for the worship of God in my life. Me. That's what he sees, man. He sees our sin. He sees our rebellion. And he is holy and just and good when he pours out wrath. And what he's saying to us through this story is, yeah, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like when you're left to yourself. This is what it looks like when you, humanity, gets what you want. But here's what he's preparing us for. Jesus. Jesus. Because we're not in those days. In those days, there was no king. And the people did what was right in their own eyes. Well, we're not in those days. We have a king. And he is the king of kings. And unlike Ehud, who died, and his leadership and his effect in the lives of the people died with him, oh, we've got, we've got a king, we've got a savior, we've got a leader who died, but death could not hold him. Death couldn't hold him. He died on purpose. He gave himself over to death. Why? Because, man, were the judges in Israel at their best, they could change the outward circumstances for the people. They could give them momentary relief from the oppression of the enemy, but we know the real oppression is in us. It's in me. It's sin in my own heart and mind. It's my own rebellion. And Jesus gives himself over because that's where he wins the battle against my sin, against your sin. And he kills it. He kills it by allowing sin and death to be laid on him. And from the cross, Jesus absorbs the wrath of God and goes into death. But he goes into death with a purpose. He goes into death to wage war. Death tries to hold Jesus and Jesus breaks its grip because Jesus is stronger than Samson. And he breaks the grip of sins and, and death's grip. And he kills it, man. Kills death. Lays death in its own grave. And he rises again. We have a judge. We have a deliverer. We have a king who's better. Because he rose again. He rose again. And our hope is that now, man, his law is written on our hearts and minds. That as, as believers, our greatest desire now is to worship him. Is to love him. Do we live in a cycle? Yeah. Yeah, you'll see his cycle in your life. Yeah, the Bible says, man, if you say you don't have sin, you're a liar. You know what lying is? Sin. sin. <laughs> yeah, we sin. Will you find yourself in a cycle of, man, giving into temptation, falling into sin? Yeah. But because Jesus is better, because Jesus is better, we can now truly repent, live and walk in repentance. Not in the cycle of, oh, crap. Man, why'd I do that? 
and, and, and be frustrated and angry with the consequences of our sin and want things to change. And so maybe we go to church for a while, maybe we read our, try to read our Bibles again and get cleaned up for a little bit and then right back to it. Because really we just wanted the bad stuff to stop. No, man, for the Christian, because God has changed your heart, when you sin, when you sin, and when you fall, and when you mess up, man, ultimately where Jesus is committed to taking you to is the place where you go, man, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I just want Jesus. Because what you feel isn't so much the oppression of the consequence of your sin. What you feel is the break in fellowship between you and Jesus. And you're no longer okay with that. So you cry out like David in Psalm 51. Right? You beat your chest and say, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. And blot out my transgression. Restore to me the joy of salvation. Restore to me the joy of fellowship with you. And so for us, man, we're not in a cycle that spirals down and unbelief into destruction. We are in a cycle of repentance and walking with Jesus where we are centered. We are spiraling around the center of Jesus' faithfulness, his victory, his promises, his spirit. And so we are spiraling up into Christ-likeness because that's what Jesus is committed to in our lives. You will be conformed to the image of Jesus. He who began a good work in you will complete it. That is his promise. And he has put his spirit in you. Now we have work to do in that. Absolutely. Absolutely. But you'll see a cycle in your life. But it'll be a cycle of repentance. Receiving God's grace. And restored fellowship and joy in your relationship and your worship of Jesus. That's our hope. Jesus is better. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians 3, 17-18. Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's going to do the work in our lives, man. Right? Like, man, <laughs> the day is going to come. We're going to see Jesus as he is. And we'll be made like him. And from this day to that day, what God is committed to in your life is your sanctification. It's a big Bible word that means you're becoming more like Jesus. And the way you think, the way you talk, the way you act. But the parallel is still there. We've been set free from sin and death, hell. The penalty of sin has been removed. And the power of sin in our life has been broken. We do have a new heart. We do have a new mind. Well, we still have to fight sin. God told those jokers, man, I'll give you the victory. I'll be with you. We'll drive these jokers out of the land. And they got lazy. They got comfortable. And they suffered the consequences. And we can, man, with all those promises I just said intact, those are unshakable, like, man, Jesus is going to do that work. 
but you can absolutely invite, man, destruction into your life. It's not going to look like you going to hell, but it'll look like you leaving such a marred testimony that people might wonder. It can look like you, man, losing your witness and testimony in front of other people not having the gospel impact in other people's lives that God designed you to have. Because just like them, man, we've been told, we've been told to wage war. You know that, right? Listen to this in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, listen to this, I'll start in verse 5. Put Today, he's talking to Christians, he's talking to the church. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality. What's that? Anything you do with your mind or body that ain't with your wife. You hear me? Anything you look at that ain't your wife, sexual immorality. Put it to death, kill it. Put it to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator." Put it down. You see this, this thing, man, this thing going on where this has already happened because of what Jesus has done, but you better get busy on making it real in your life right now. Put it to death. You're called to wage war, and if you don't, they will, they will become idols in your life, and they will rise up and oppress you. So wage war. So how do we do that? What does that look like? What does it look like to wage war and put sin to death? He tells us. I'll back up to verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. See what he's saying, man? Right? You've heard pastors say this got to be heavenly minded, right? Like set your mind on the things above. Focus on Jesus. Set your eyes on your king. How do we do that? Skip ahead to verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. No shortcuts. How are you going to wage war against sin? How are you going to put it to death? How are you going to man, actively take part in that upward spiral? The Word of Christ has to dwell in you richly, abundantly, like overflow out of your life. Did you see it? Not just that you... Read it for yourself, but what does he say next? Teach it. Think back to the first session, man. What, what, what is our responsibility? We've got to tell the next generation. We've got to tell other people. We don't keep this to ourselves. 
Man, we drink deeply of the Word of God. Man, in meditation, memorization, reading and studying the disciplined intake of Scripture into our life so that our mind is set on the things above, so that we see a clear picture of our, of our Jesus, so the world doesn't mingle and pervert and twist our view of who Jesus is, that we don't take Jesus off his throne and bring him down here and somehow make him just another idol that serves us. We see him in his authority. We see him in his power so that we surrender to him. And then we teach other people, man, and then we worship. We worship him. So a weekend like this, that's wonderful. I love them. In fact, it's what I apparently am doing with my life. I have weekends like this. I love it, man. It's encouraging. It's challenging, right? Convicting. We need stuff like this. But that's not where we live. It's not where we live. What's going to sustain your walk? What's going to sustain your sanctification? What's going what's to make a difference? Not, not just like a week from now, I'm like tomorrow. When you go to speak harshly to your wife, what will grab the reins of your tongue is the disciplined intake of Scripture. When you know, man, you are a click away, and you know like, oh, I'm not looking for porn, I'm not looking for porn, I'm just, I'm just going to go to this site, and I know, but you know, man, in the back of your mind, you know you are on your way. What will make you drop your phone, throw it away, grab a flip phone, and don't care what anybody thinks, what will do that is a disciplined intake of Scripture. And then the Spirit of God bringing that word to your mind in your moment of temptation. When you're stressed out, <laughs> when you're just tired and stressed out, and you gravitate towards self-medication, either with a pill or a bottle or entertainment or whatever it is, what will draw you back is the disciplined intake of Scripture. There's no shortcuts and there's no substitute. We live here. We live here. And if we'll do that, man, God is ap- Whoa. That was awesome. Did you hear that? I should have just kept rolling. Like, you thought that was a good point. All right, I'm with you. If we do that, God is absolutely committed, committed to your sanctification. He's going to grow you. He's going to use you. Your life will be spent on things that are eternal. And I don't know if you noticed, but the only thing eternal on this planet is other people. You'll spend your life serving other people with the gospel. Pray with me and we'll sing. Lord Jesus, love you. God, we need you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your life and your death and your resurrection. Thank you for your promises, and I pray that we would hold fast to them and that we'd act. We'd act in obedience because of them, and that you'd grow us, you'd change us, you'd sanctify us, you'd make us more like Jesus. I pray that you would, this morning, bring men to repentance and faith, save them. I pray that you'd grow us, God, that you'd make us better husbands, better fathers, better sons, better pastors, better workers, better servants to bring glory and honor to your name. God, we love you. We need you. In Christ's name.